Catalyst is a unique five-year government-backed business development program that unlocks the vast potential of economic partnerships between Australia and Indonesia. Food security is a concern for every country on Earth. Indonesia and Australia are no exception. Welcome to Episode 6, Season 2 of the Catalyst Podcast, where we will look at strategies to address food security challenges. In my opinion, food security, or shall we say the threat of food insecurity, is an existential threat to humankind. Because without food, there is no civilization there is no humankind. That was Prabowo Subianto, Indonesian Minister of Defense, speaking at the Global Food Security Forum held on the sidelines of the G20 meeting in Bali back in November 2022. Minister Prabowo went on to say that each year, Indonesia's population increases by 1.9%, or roughly 5 million babies born each year. Now, that's one million short of the size of Singapore now at six million, which demonstrates the threat that food insecurity poses to a rapidly growing country. But there are solutions to be found, as he pointed out, including through unifying national and international actors and promoting cohesive collaborative responses. Today, my co-host Rachel Masonan and I speak with Maria Monica Wiharja, advisory board member of Australian National University Indonesia Project and visiting fellow at ICS Yusuf Ishak Institute in Singapore. And Salah Sukaria, agricultural robotics expert at the University of Sydney. Hi, Sundang. So good to see you. I hear you've been cooking a lot lately. Hi, Rachel. That's true. I've been keeping busy. I I do love to cook and try out new recipes. Of course, the easy thing would be to order food on delivery apps. But most of the time, I do try to get busy in the kitchen. I don't know if you've noticed, but I am realizing that prices are slowly but steadily going up. Is that the case in Australia, too? definitely the case in Australia as well. And I too am often tempted by Uber Eats for Deliveroo, some of our food delivery. <laughs> um, but definitely when I go to the supermarket, I am noticing an increase in, in the prices of, of foods that we used to take for granted as being pretty inexpensive. Definitely um, the price of fresh vegetables I've noticed has gone up a lot. Things like cauliflower, which used to be a really cheap vegetable, you know, I think I paid triple what I'd usually pay a couple of weeks ago for that. And I've also noticed the price of meat and seafood increasing. And here in Australia, you know, girt by sea, we eat a lot of seafood. And so I think a lot of Australians would be feeling the pinch around things like that. But but I've also noticed it's it's actually in the news at the moment in Indonesia. Food food security and food prices are really topical there. It is, especially it's Ramadan now leading up to Eid, which is a major holiday in Indonesia. There's a lot of attention being placed on prices of staple food commodities. You know, we eat a lot of rice, eggs, beef, 
chicken, soybeans, food that we consume every day, food that we grew up eating, you know, our comfort food and special treats and holidays. So, yeah, it's uh, it's a it's a big topic at the moment. Well, you know, there is no doubt that increases are part of the impact of disruptions on food supply chain and trade and this challenge about availability, about affordability would need to be urgently resolved. So great to have leading voices on food security in our show today. Ah, definitely. And something I find really interesting is technological solutions to the food security crisis. There's a lot of really interesting research happening about maximizing agricultural productivity and increasing the yields of micro and small scale farmers while still managing the environmental impacts really well. And there's some really fascinating solutions in the robotics sort of space, which we definitely touched on in this episode today, which is really exciting. So with that, here's the episode. Let's now welcome Maria Monica Biharja, Advisory Board Member of the Australian National University Indonesia Project and Visiting Fellow at ICS News of Ishak Institute in Singapore. Hi, Monica. Hi. Thanks for joining us. Um, Monica, when we talk about food security, it's not just about ensuring availability, but also affordability. It's beyond ensuring calorie intake, but also covers protein intake. Can you walk us through where we are right now in terms of food security? Okay, let me first start with talking about, you know, Indonesia's food law, you know, as the basic principles of uh, food security definition in Indonesia. So food security has multiple dimensions and using Indonesia's food law, uh, namely law number 18, 2012, food policy is based on eight principles, namely sovereignty, independence, security, safety, benefits, equality, sustainability, and justice. And last year, Indonesia established the National Food Agency, or in short, NFA, to coordinate, formulate, and implement various food policies. And essentially, NFA is like a conductor in a big orchestra. It orchestrates a large symphony by harmonizing food policies and programs across various stakeholders. And the eight directives mentioned in the food law are grouped into three broad pillars. And the first pillar is food availability and price stabilization. And under this pillar, NFA manages food reserve to ensure food security and execute price stabilization programs. The second pillar is food and nutrition vulnerability. And under this pillar, NFA targets areas that are vulnerable to food insecurity including by strengthening food logistics systems and distributing food to food insecure areas. And the third pillar is dietary diversification and food safety. And under this pillar, NFA promotes balanced diet and local food consumption, as well as monitoring food quality and safety standards. What is not explicitly included in these three pillars is the sustainability aspects of food production. However, NFA does have sustainability programs such as food waste management. 
And as you rightly pointed out, uh, Ibu Sonna, that food is not only about calories, but also protein and nutrition. And the second and third pillars of NFA are supposed to be addressing nutrition security and diversified diet. And these aspects of food security, food security should not be considered any less than other aspects of food security, namely the availability and affordability aspects. Indonesia has a huge nutritional gap to address. You know, most Indonesians consume a relatively undiversified, low-nutrition diet with a lot of rice. Moreover, around 21% of children under 5 still experience chronic malnutrition or what we call stunting. And this has huge long-term social, economic, and mortality consequences. So in my opinion, uh, I think Indonesia needs to move from rice-centric or even palm oil-centric food policy goal to more nutrition-centric goal. And the overly emphasized rice self-sufficiency target will not solve Indonesia's nutritional issues. Currently, uh, Indonesia's National Development Planning Ministry, or BAPENAS, has prepared the National Action Plan for Food and Nutrition 2021-2024, and it's, it's translating it to the regional level. And, you know, in this case, NFA uh, should again be orchestrating the implementations of this National Action Plan for Food and Nutrition. And, you know, uh, it remains to be seen whether NFA could successfully manage this. There is a constant, however, every year in the lead up to major holidays, such as right now in Ramadan leading up to Eid, that food prices tend to go up and the inflation, food inflation isn't helping either. What are you noticing this year? So, you know, like, you know, it's expected that food inflation is high during festive seasons, right? Uh, but food policies always adjust to these expectations. So the government already expects that food inflation will be high during festive seasons. And usually, you know, the government already have plans to uh, import necessary food commodities. What is important is, I think, uh, you know, to give people the right signal that as demand increasing uh, as demand increases approaching festive seasons there's sufficient supply so that there's no panic or hoarding behaviors that could lead to a full blown food price surge and uh, i think what is also important is to monitor that food inflation during the festive seasons is not sticky in other words they should go down to a normal level after the festive seasons end this year is not an exception and food prices have been increasing in the lead up to the eighth season. But this year, food prices are already higher than normal even before the start of the eighth season. And there are multiple factors to the high food prices this year. You know, as we all know, this includes the high global food energy and fertilizer inflation that was carried on from last year due to the protracted war in Ukraine. Uh, and also uh, increased food export bans around the world in response to uncertainties in relation to the state of the world, and also increased uh, frequency and intensity of extreme weather due to climate change, including the very wet seasons that Indonesia experienced last year and this year. But fortunately, Indonesia uh, do have some mechanisms in place to manage food inflation, including through international trade, 
targeted social assistance such as food poacher, uh, market price support, including putting ceiling to retail prices, and also subsidies on fertilizers and seeds. However, these mechanisms are not perfect. Uh, for example, fertilizer subsidies, which account for a quarter of the annual agriculture budget or 1% of total state budget, are expensive. But they're still you know, poorly targeted. Uh, they are still regressive, subject to leakage, and cost ineffective at increasing production. And there are also weaknesses in our social registry data that is used to target social assistance programs. But there's a saying that bad times made good policies. So hopefully the rough ride we are facing this year could trigger the government to accelerate, you know, bold structural reforms in managing high food prices and food inflation. One thing for sure, we we love our rice and there are some um, staples in our diet that we just can't live without. And this time of year leading up to Eid, the demand rises even more. Uh, rendang, spicy food, tempe, tofu, which depend on imported items, beef, garlic, sugar, soybeans, other ingredients. You've done a lot of research in the area of food security and provided some policy recommendations. If you could share some of them with us. So, uh, you know, interestingly, uh, food culture is shaped by many factors, including foreign policy. You know, the culture of Indomie, if I may call it a culture because so many Indonesians eat a lot of Indomie, originates from the U.S. food aid of wheat in the 1960s to help Indonesia from rice shortages during political instability of the regime change. And I'm sure like Indonesia also has its own stories of tempeh and tofu eating habit. As we all know, you know, uh, Tempeh and tofu are largely uh, also made of imported soybeans. So uh, the question is, you know, how do we keep prices of food that we import low, right? I think first is to have high quality and transparent food balance sheet data. We have to be honest about our food deficits and allow imports when needed without hurting our farmers. And second is to vigorously promote regional and global cooperation and coordinations on food security uh, in times of global uncertainties that uh, you know we are facing right now. Importing countries tend to heighten their food sovereignty goals by producing more at home, while exporting countries tend to stockpile their own domestic supplies and reduce or even ban exports altogether. And this could lead to a suboptimal outcome. But there are better ways actually to manage uncertainties. Uh, we, you know, we should encourage more regular dialogues across regional and global countries with some level of information sharing, such as on, you know, individual countries' national food stock, you know, uh, countries sharing, you know, how much uh, food stock they have at home. Uh, Professor Peter Timmer uh, at Harvard and a global authority of food security rightly pointed out that, you know, despite the odds, multilateral cooperation has helped global food security this year, uh, last year and this year, you know, including the Black Sea Grain Initiative still. And last year under Indonesia's presidency, the G20 countries anonymously agreed on many fronts to address looming global food insecurity. You know, which include 
a call to keep supply chain functioning and to reverse export restrictions on food and fertilizers, you know, as well as for the WTO to update trade rules on food. Without confidence on regional and global cooperation and coordination, I think we may see food prote- protectionism on the rise and even weaponization of food in the midst of geopolitical rivalries. And, you know, this this could hurt countries like Indonesia. Yeah, so I guess I, I could not emphasize more on, on the need, you know, for regional and global coordination and cooperation. That was Maria Monica Wihaja speaking with Sondang. I caught up with Professor Salas Sukaria, agriculture robotics expert at the University of Sydney. Salas' research focuses on embracing technological solutions to ensure food security in Australia and globally. Today we're talking about food security, uh, which is a topic that has come up a little bit um, in in our work on Catalyst and, and in past episodes. And I want to start by saying food security isn't a threat to Australia the way it necessarily is in other countries in the region. But given changing climates and risks of natural disasters, um, such as the floods and bushfires that we've seen in recent years, there is growing concern about ensuring food security and and the productivity of of agriculture um, into the future. How does this tie into your work? Yeah, so the I, I think there's a there's a couple of things there that are intertwined in in various forms. The um, the aspect around food security and food productivity is an important one. Um, climate change is this element, and and the impact that climate change has is an element that kind of disrupts, but it's not it's not a direct link to what we're trying to do when it comes to um, improving food productivity. And I'll explain in a second. Um, you know what we what we see in agriculture now and around food productivity and ensuring food, and in particular nutrition security. So not just food security, but nutrition security, is um, around the topic of precision agriculture. So how do we get more out of the land, or at least get the same amount out of the land. And the reason why is aspects such as climate change probably have an impact a lot on pests and diseases, new pests and diseases that come through and affect what's happening with crops. There's also soil erosion and soil degradation. There's another element um, that kicks in. Um, And so with that, what we're seeing is a growing population around the world, um, a requirement around getting better nutrition security. Uh, which then leads to food security and better food productivity. And in my world, that involves around precision agriculture. So what can we do on the land at higher precision, higher spatial and temporal precision um, to improve productivity in general? And that usually means bringing in technologies of various forms, usually digital technologies that can get down to the centimetre level, um, that can do it at higher frequencies in updates, how new is precision agriculture? Like how long has this concept been around? It's been around uh, for, for many decades now. I think it's, it's always been a – so when you look at food productivity on farm, um, you see you see always this trend around how do you get um, better and better um, uh, spatial resolutions? How do you kind of get more and more knowledge down at that local area? Um, what's happening over the last maybe five and maybe ten years, but more, more so five years, is the the big push around digital technology, so sensors, machine learning, artificial intelligence, better tools, um, mechatronic tools. We're starting to see this growth of understanding and applica- application of these new tools on farm, 
and that and that's that's really where because the, the big you know the big, the big drivers at the moment now. So can you tell me a bit more about the technology that you've developed um, and how robotics can improve food security? Yeah, so um, at about about uh, fifteen years ago, I started to walk around to different uh, rural development corps, so RDCs in Australia, our horticulture, grains, cotton, etc. And started to ask the question around whether or not robotics, what we call field robotics, so outdoor machinery that can operate autonomously, could they benefit the Australian agriculture scene? And this was at a time when we were seeing it happening in mining and in logistics, but not in agriculture. Um, and slowly over those years, we've been building up you know, various projects and worked with um, different farmers around the country about the application of robotics. And at about five, eight years ago, maybe, we got the opportunity to test that out in Indonesia as as an as one um, one country outside of Australia, and then also then in Fiji and Samoa, um, and really what the focus has been on is can we build and operate small electric platforms that can operate on farm, and in real time can they make assessments of things such as the each individual plant and the surrounding soil and water availability, and can they act while they're doing that. So can they remove weeds or detect and spray plants that might have pests or diseases on them, et cetera. So what we've been doing with the robotics work is, can we um, uh, can we apply precision agriculture down to the individual plant level um, is, is really what it was. And and so we're looking at things such as the digitization of agronomy um, onto a platform. And, and and so the platform, can, a robotic platform can make decisions as if there was an agronomist that could assess every single plant, basically, and then act on that as well. And uh, what we tried to do in, in places like Indonesia was, uh, can we make the platform even smaller, lighter, easier to use? Because what we found, uh, regardless of which of the Asia-Pacific countries we went to, was the same challenges. It's just different economics. And so just working out the economic elements of how to put this type of technology in farm was important, but the same challenges, lack of labor, desire to use less chemicals, desire to improve productivity was still the same. So the desire to make the technology smaller, lighter, easier to handle, is that to increase ease of getting it to farmers or, or to, you know, for ease of trade? Like what's the motivation there? It's the economics. So um, while in Australia, for example, it might, you might be paying um, $50, $60 an hour for someone to come out and weed the farm. Um, you're not doing that in Indonesia. So the cost of building the technology to meet that cost here, that operational cost here in Australia is one thing. To do that in Indonesia would be something very different. So reducing the cost was one thing. Um, making it easier to use, uh, uh, you know, communication, education, uh, are kind of different in, depending on the country you go to. So making it easier to use was important. And the third is that probably no farmer would own a robot in say Indonesia, or not many farmers would own a robot in Indonesia, Fiji, Samoa, but they might in Australia. And so you build a robot that could be used as a service, you know, so it could go from farm to farm. So there's slightly different technology requirements, but trying to achieve the same precision ag uh, requirements. I mean, you said there not many farmers in Indonesia would own a robot and, and the same goes for many um, countries in our region in the Pacific and Southeast Asia. So how applicable do you think the technology is 
in in contexts like that? Or do you think that this kind of technology is better suited to Australia um, or other kind of advanced economies? Yeah, no, sir. So that was my initial thought as well, going um, going to the Pacific Islands and into Indonesia as well. Uh, but what I quickly learned was that the farmers do require and want the technology. Um, they've seen this, the stresses that they go through are no different to the stresses that we find with the farmers in Australia. So they, they desire the technology, they want the technology. Um, what we um, uh, what we determined, though, was that there were probably different ways of delivering that technology. So while we might use some expensive computing and so forth here in Australia, using a smartphone um, in this way, we could put machine learning algorithms on a smartphone that you can buy off the shelf, gives you exactly the same results, very similar results. Um, while we might custom make robots here in Australia, um, in Indonesia, you might um, be using, for example, you know the whole eco, the scooter ecosystem, uh, where there's mechanics and 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 spare parts and service, where you can actually pull apart these scooters and rebuild them in a way that would be applicable on farm. So you get the same output from a precision ag, but using local technology um, is probably is the right way forward. That solves the technology part, the economics part. Um, you know, my experiences, I mean, it was, it was interesting. So, you know, there was a lot of cooperatives that were formed in Indonesia for growing food uh, run by women um, and they desire the tech. And so being able to use a single piece of technology across many farms is probably the right way to do it as opposed to each farm having its own piece of technology. So what do you think the, the outlook is for food security in Australia and Indonesia then to finish? There's a yeah look there's a big drive around uh, digital agriculture in general uh, both in Australia and in Indonesia and and in many parts of the world um, in, including across the Southeast Asia area and in that space we're starting to see people using um, IoT so Internet of Things so little devices that they put in the soil through to drones um, and this is just another form of technology a ground based robot technology that will feed into that old food security play. Um, as a you know, to close the loop back to what we we're saying in the beginning, the whole idea is that with platforms that can operate for long periods of time on farm, you start to see a little bit more of that precision ag down to that individual plant level, and that precision ag will allow us to use less chemicals, less water, less energy to grow the same amount of food, if not more. And that's really what that objective is. Well, thanks so much for sharing your insights with us. It's great to talk to you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. That was episode six of the Catalyst podcast with Maria Monica Biharja and Salah Sukaria. As always, thanks for joining us. We'll see you in the next episode.